Our God is amazing, isn't he? All right, you guys did better than first service. You know, the first service was like, I had to say, I had to say it again, and, and then finally they're awake. So I know you guys are awake. It's later. All right, we want to talk about this amazing God that we have this month. And so uh, we want to look at uh, the story of the Israelites coming into the promised land and all that God did uh, to make that uh, come, become a reality. And, and we're going to be uh, kind of hanging out in the book of Joshua for the next couple of weeks. Um, and so uh, we, want, we want to kind of uh, see what God does in the life of Joshua and the life of the Israelites. Uh, before we jump into our story, though, we want to make sure that we understand uh, the background. All right. Uh, I am I'm very convinced that context is important. All right. You can take some, what somebody said and, and say, look what he said. And then you read the context. You're like, yeah, that's not really what he said. You, you're kind of, you know, so context is important. So uh, to understand the book of Joshua, we need to understand the history of Israel up to this point. All right, a couple of generations before Joshua, the Israelites were slaves in a country called Egypt. Egypt. All right, my, uh, my uh, father-in-law is on top of it. All right. Egypt. I don't know what was happening there. So Egypt. Okay, so slaves in Egypt. We got that. A lot of us know that story. Uh, if you don't, uh, it's very simple. The, uh, the Israelites, they lived as nomads for the first part of their history, uh, and then a famine hit, and so there wasn't food or, or grass to grow uh, for their, their sheep to eat. And so they ended up going to Egypt where one of their sons, uh, Joseph, was second in charge. And Joseph got them uh, this beautiful place, Goshen, uh, right on the Nile River that they could raise their cattle. But uh, as far- new pharaohs came and as dynasties fell and new ones rose, the pharaohs didn't know who the Israelites were. And so they, uh, all they really saw was this people group living in their country that weren't really a part of them. And so they decided to enslave them because that's what any good nation does, right? All right, so that's what they did. Uh, they enslaved them. They were fearful, uh, and it became harsher and harsher and harsher until the Israelites finally cried out to God and said, God, deliver us. Now, what did they call? What did they say? God, they God, deliver us. All right, that's going to be important for like in two seconds, okay? All right, they cried out to God, and so God gives them Moses, and Moses comes in, and he says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you got to let the Israelites go. And Pharaoh says, no, I don't. Who are you? All right, and so uh, there's this big fight. God wins. God sends down ten plagues uh, that devastate the nation. And uh, as part of this, the Israelites, they were very good at remembering what God had done in their past. And so they started this festival uh, to represent them leaving Egypt. And the name of the festival was called Passover, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, depending on where you read it. Same thing. And it celebrated them being set free, God passing over their houses as he struck down the Egyptians uh, and allowed them uh, to be set free. And and pretty much they get set free and no one likes it. All right, so what was it that they cried out to God to do? Deliver us. us. And they get free and they said, why'd you do that? Literally, I mean, that's not literally, I mean, pretty much what they said, okay? They all but four of them over the age of 20 complained about God setting them free. They constantly were saying, God, why did you bring us out here to die? Wouldn't it have been better for us to be in Egypt? Well, what's the answer to that? Would it have been better for them to be in Egypt? No. Hey, I, I told first service it's going to be a quiz day, okay? So I'm going to ask questions and, and you guys respond. You guys are doing a great job without me having to tell you that, okay? All right, so 
So that's kind of what happened. The Israelites, they get to the edge of the promised land. They send out some scouts. They say, see if we can take this over. And the scouts come back and they said, there is no way we can do that. All right, except for two of them. All right, and so uh, they, they are like, no, no, we can't do it. And, and to be honest, you know, they probably couldn't. All right, by themselves, there's no way they were going to conquer it. But who did they have on their side? God. All right, and so God was on their side, and God's already shown that he can conquer the Egyptians. He could probably take out the Canaanites as well. All right, and so, uh, but instead they rebel, and that kind of leads us to where we're at. There's been 40 years where God, as punishment, said, you're going to stay in the desert for 40 years. Uh, no one under, over the age of 20 is going to be able to enter into the promised land. And so by the time we get to Joshua chapter 5, where we're going to be at today, uh, that generation has passed. Moses is dead, and we have a new uh, leader, Joshua. And so uh, we want to be in Joshua chapter 5 today. Uh, it's probably near the end of it, starting in verse uh, 10, I believe. Uh, and we are going to uh, kind of see what uh, God does here. The, the first five chapters of Joshua is essentially telling the story of how the Israelites cross over uh, the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And what we see in these first verses is something pretty amazing, in my opinion. All right, we see God's timing. And so here, here, here's how it is. I mean, remember what I said at the beginning, our God is amazing? All right, this is what happens in verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camping at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and, and uh, roasted grain. And the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. All right, there are two things that are, are taking place here. Okay, The first is uh, they're at this place called Gilgal. Gilgal was the first uh, place that the Israelites stopped and camped at upon entering into the promised land. And what does it say that they're celebrating? Passover. All right, what does Passover remind them of? Getting out of Egypt, right? All right, and so this is important, okay? We, we shouldn't just skip over this, all right? This is God's timing. The Israelites that came out of Egypt that witnessed the ten plagues of Egypt and witnessed God's miraculous event, they're all dead, all right? They're not around. And so the promise that God gave when he was taking them out of Egypt was that you have a new land you're going to get to go see. And so the first thing that they do as a nation upon entering into this new land is the same thing that they did on the first, last day that they were in Egypt. How awesome is that? That it just worked out that that was the first thing that they're celebrating upon entering into the promised land. I think that's cool. I think that's part of God's, that's part of God's timing in things. Another thing we see is, is God's provision. All right? Throughout the 40 years of being in the desert, the Israelites weren't in one place long enough to have uh, crops. All right? They weren't there long enough to, to harvest and to break, make bread. And so God provided them bread. And he provided them bread in this form of manna. And basically manna just kind of appeared. Okay? They, they walk outside of the tent and, oh, manna! And they could pick it up, and they could eat it, and then they would go to bed, and the next day they would open up their tents and, oh, manna, all right? And it was just a constant thing that happened over and over again. God provided them bread to eat on a daily basis. Now that they enter into the promised land, all right, this place that's flowing with milk and honey, all right, they no longer have manna. Now, does it mean that God isn't providing for them? No, no, not at all, okay? God is providing, and the provision 
is no longer in the need for manna, but in this land that God has given them. All right, and so God's provision and timing is throughout it all. Sometimes I think in our lives, we want God to do what we want him to do, and we want it now. All right, and we want it now, and, and, and the problem is, is that I think that God doesn't work that way. I, I think when we read the Bible, God works on his own time schedule, and, and we see it showing up here in the use of the Passover as the first thing, and we see it uh, here in a little bit more about what they did during the Passover feast. All right, God works how he's going to work. All right, so that's kind of a background into what we're actually going to read today. All right, that was the intro. You ready? <laughs> All right, verses uh, 13 through 15, we read this uh, of chapter 5. And now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing up in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and he asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the man replied, neither, but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and he asked, what message does the Lord have for his servants? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. All right, so uh, we want to talk for a moment about the city of Jericho that they're about to take over. And, and oftentimes as a kid, I, I sing this song in, in children's church that when Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, 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 and we talk about the walls tumbling and all that stuff. And when I pictured this city as a little kid, I pictured this massive thing like the size of New York City with these walls that were gigantic. Uh, and, and the reality is, is it probably actually wasn't that big like on any scale, okay? Uh, the town itself was probably just a few city blocks, but it's an important town, all right? It's important for a couple of different reasons. One, where it's located, all right? It's located at a crossroads of trade routes, okay? There's a, uh, the, the land of Palestine, Canaan, uh, they have a lot of mountain ranges, and it's hard sometimes to cross mountains, right? And so there's every once in a while these cuts in the land, almost as if God made it that way, huh? And, and it, you could get from th through these cuts east and west. So Jericho sits at the entrance of one of these uh, cross routes, all right? And tra trade would travel across this and have to pass through Jericho and all that stuff. There's also uh, a north-south trade route along the Jordan River that happens to cross by Jericho. And so Jericho was a very important location, not to mention the fact that to enter into Canaan, you had to cross the fords of Jericho, which are uh, fords of the Jordan, which happened to be right there by Jericho. All right, so, so one of the reasons why Jericho is important is of where it's located. All right, another reason why it's important is it's one of the oldest walled cities that we've ever found. All right, so the fact that it had a wall completely around its city is, is pretty significant. All right, uh, so that's another reason. Another reason that's important is because of a practice that the Jews had, which was that of first fruits. All right, and, and I want to kind of explain a little bit. All right, first fruits uh, for the Israelites is, is the part of the crop that they would dedicate to God. All right, they didn't wait until after the harvest was completely done and then say, okay, I need this for, for my plants next year. I need this for my animals. I need this to feed us, and this is what I can give to God. That's not how they operated. Instead, the first things that they harvested, that was what went to God. All right, it was the first fruits. And so when we talk about this idea of first fruits in Jericho, it's important to us to remember a promise that God gave the Israelites. All right, when he said, I'm taking you to the promised land, he said that there's three things that they were going to get to do. They were going to live in 
cities and houses that they didn't build. All right, they were going to get to, to a harvest from uh, farms that they didn't plow, all right, and they would get uh, the fruit of the vines of vineyards that they didn't plant. So houses they didn't build, fields they didn't plow, vineyards that they didn't plant. All right, and so then when we look at Jericho, something completely different happens all right, than everywhere else in the book of Joshua. All right, the entire town is said to be devoted to God, and it's going to be destroyed. Why? Well, because of first fruits. It's the first city. And so this first city, it belongs to God and not to the Israelites. And so all that happens in the rest of this is going to be because of that. Now this messenger comes and he comes to kind of tell Joshua that God is on his side. He's fighting with him. All right? And Joshua, upon realizing that this is an angel, does what pretty much everybody in the Bible does. He falls face down on the ground uh, in, in reverence, it says, in fear, all right, and, and he is recognizing the power of this angel. All right, and so this angel is going to say some things in chapter 6, uh, but before we get to what he says, there's this little comment, all right, in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says this, it says, uh, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites, and no one went out, and no one came in. And in this little verse, sometimes I think we can kind of skip over it in the story of, Jericho, of Joshua and Jericho, uh, but I think it's really important that we don't, okay? Because I think that what we're seeing here is, is a commentary by whoever wrote the book of Joshua about the spiritual nature of who the, the uh, Jericho people were like, all right? They are shut up to the Israelites, not just physically, but also spiritually. All right, and we're going to see something uh, pretty fast. Hey, Lori, will you change this slide for me? There we go. All right, we're going to see something pretty fascinating happen in this next um, little chapter. All right, we're going to see uh, that not everyone in Jericho is destroyed. All right, there, there's one family, Rahab and her family, that aren't destroyed. All right, and, and we, we got to ask that question, why? And we'll ask it here in a little, little bit. All right, but when we think about that story, about why she is spared, we have to remember something that happens in Joshua chapter 2, okay? Joshua chapter 2, the spies are going out. They come to Jericho. Uh, they stay at Rahab's house. Rahab saves them. And in their conversation, Rahab says something to them. She says that all of Canaan, all, right, all of her people, all, right, all of her nation, they've heard what has happened with the kings across the Jordan with the Israelites having defeated them. And she says that their hearts of the Canaanites have melted in fear. And, and at the very end of that, she says this. She says, and we know that the Lord, your God, is Lord of both heaven above and earth below. I mean, this is a Canaan. This is someone who's not an Israelite, and she's having this great confession of faith. All right? and, and we have to keep that in the back of our minds, just for a little bit. All right? But I want to know why the rest of the Canaanites didn't come to this same conclusion. And I wonder if they did have that conclusion. They decided, you know what, we're going to fight against the Israelites. All right? they, they have that same choice to, to be like Rahab and to, to come before the Israelites and to, to try to change their lives. All right? But they don't. Instead, in verse 1 of chapter 6, we read that they're walled up. They're not going out, and no one's coming in. So I want to kind of expand on this a little bit and talk a little bit about who God is. 
our God is an amazing God. Now, part of that nature of who He is, there is a justness to Him. Uh, Throughout this book, we're going to see that the Israelites come in and they wipe out the Canaanites. And a lot of times when we read this, we can kind of be like, man, God, God was kind of mean in the Old Testament, wasn't He? I mean, we can sometimes have that reaction. We have to ask, well, why is He doing this? And we have to realize that God, as a just God, punishes sin. He does. Uh, He did it with the Israelites. When the Israelites sinned, people came in and He punished them. So we have to look at the Canaanites. Are they sinful people? And the answer is yes. They're not innocent. Let me just for a moment talk a little bit about one of their gods that they worshipped. This is just one of them. Okay? His name was Moloch. All right? And Moloch, uh, he was depicted as this bronze bull humanoid statue. Okay, And, and Moloch, you know... It was okay, kind of a weird God, okay, but what they would do when they were sacrificed to him is they would heat the idol up, a bronze idol, with two fires so they would get it super high heated, right? And this idol would often have an uh, empty hole around its stomach area, and it would have hands holding like this. And they would take newborn children, and they would pass the children through the hole of this superheated idol into these superheated hands, and if the child survived, it was a blessing from Moloch. And if not, it was a sacrifice to him. All right? The Canaanites, that was just one of their gods. The Canaanites were not innocent in any sense of the word. All right? They were sinners, worthy of justice. And so when the Israelites come in and, and they, God has them kill them off, he has them kill them off for a reason. The problem is the Israelites didn't. Right? They didn't completely destroy this, this nation of Canaan. And so what we see happen later on in, in 1 Kings and 2 Kings is we see the Israelites start to worship this god called Molech, where they were taking their babies and doing the exact same thing. Right? There's a reason why God was demanding this. Right? And, and it's part of who God is as being a just God. But even though He is just, God is merciful. And we see that even as they are destroying the town of Jericho, there is mercy for Rahab. And why is she saved? It's more than just because she spared a couple of people. And we'll talk about that in a second, okay? But it's more than that. It's because our God is also a merciful God. Ultimately, the thing that I think God is desiring from human beings is devotion. All of us, all parts of who we are, and all aspects of our lives. And Canaan chose not to do that. And even when they had that opportunity of interacting with the Israelites, they choose instead, on this commentary of verse 1, to wall themselves up and to fight and resist the God of Israel. All right, so that's a little aside. Here's what happens in the rest of the story. Verses 2 through 5, we read that uh, the Lord, talking through the angel, says to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once uh, with all of the armed men. Do this for six days. Have uh, seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them uh, sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the walls of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. All right, so uh, he kind of lays out the battle plan. Here's what you are to do. Uh, and it's 
And it's, again, a sign of God's timing, okay? All right, what are they celebrating again? Passover, okay. As any good Jewish feast is, the Passover is seven days long. The feast festival is. All right, and so how long are they marching around Jericho? Seven days. Amazing how that works, right? All right, so for seven days while they're celebrating the Passover, they're also going to be marching around this city. And they're going to do it in kind of a weird way, right? They're going to start with the ark, and it's going to walk around the city. And probably what happens, again, this town wasn't extremely large, all right? They, it was easy for them to do this, and on the seventh day for them to do it seven times, okay? Uh, probably what happens is when the Israelites, with how many people are in their army, uh, they get up and they walk around, and by the time the ark is starting, probably the last group of men fighting are starting. All right, so stopping starting. I don't know if I said that right, but that's what I meant. All right, and so at one point in time, as they're walking around the city, the entire city is going to be surrounded by an army of men ready for battle. I imagine being on top of Jericho and seeing that. All right, on the walls, looking out over and like, ooh. All right, but what makes it even more creepy, almost, all right, is how they're walking. All right, they're walking in silence. Have you ever been to a football stadium? Either high school, I mean, that's fine, but even college. If you ever go to a college football game, just just stop. Even if there's nothing going on on the field, just listen. What do you hear? There's noise. You know, people are talking. All right? Now imagine being in a football stadium full of people and there's silence. I mean, how creepy would that be? You know? And so you're standing on the walls of Jericho as this army is marching around and all you hear is them walking, not talking, not shouting, not singing battle hymns or, or whatever else. They're just, I mean, that'd be kind of creepy. And then on the seventh day, they do it seven times in silence until the very end. I mean, how creeped out would you be? I, I, I just can't imagine what, what, it, what was going through their heads as they're doing this. All right, well, let's read what happens on the seventh day. Verse 15, uh, we're going to kind of skip some things that kind of repeat itself. So verse 15 of chapter 6, we read, uh, On the seventh day they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day they circled the city seven times. And the seventh time around, the priest sounded the trumpet blast, and Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it is to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab... The prostitute and all those who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies uh, we sent. Uh, but keep away from the devoted things so that they will you know, not bring down destruction on your, your own destruction. Wow. By taking any of them, uh, otherwise you will make the camp of Israel, Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble to it. And all the silver and gold and the articles of the bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must come to this treasury. All right, so. Uh, here we go. We have the seventh day. Uh, and what we kind of see happen throughout the rest of the chapter, we're not going to read it. You can uh, later by yourself. All right. You'll see this A-B pattern. All right. And the A-B pattern is simple. It's Joshua says, there's a thing devoted towards God, the city. And then there's Rahab. And then there's this thing devoted towards God to the city. And then Rahab. And it goes back and forth and back and forth talking about the things devoted and Rahab and what happens to her. And and anytime you see a pattern, especially in the Old Testament, it's there for a reason. All right, so what's, why is it here? Well, I think we have to understand this idea of what devotion means. All right, the things that are being devoted, all right, if they cannot burn, 
all right, they would be brought to the temple treasury. That's why you see the metals, okay, the precious metals and those things. They're going to be taken to the temple because you can't burn them. All right, anything else that can be burned needs to be. So animals, all right, that type of stuff. And then we have this other idea of people and how are they devoted towards God. And I think that the reason why Rahab is spared is not just because she saved the Israelite spies. Yes, that's part of it. But part of it, and a great part of it, I think, deals with her devotion towards God. And so when it comes to people and whether or not they're devoted to God, they, they can either be devoted or not. And if they're not, you can't force them to be devoted, can you? And so the reaction, or what they're supposed to do if they are not devoted themselves, is you've got to kill them. But what about those that already are devoted towards the Lord? Like Rahab. Well, she's spared. Right? And we see that later on, that she integrates into the Israelite society to the point that she is one of the four women named, or three women named, in Jesus' genealogy. Right, God uses this, this woman who's a Canaanite, not even an Israelite, to be a part of bringing about the Savior of the world. Right, she's devoted to God. And so this idea of devotion centers around everything that they end up doing here. Well, verses 20 through 21, we read uh, that the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged in, and they took the city. So basically, all the army is probably on top of the walls, and when the walls collapse, there's nobody to fight. Yay! Let's go in. And they go in, and they do all that God has told them to do. They destroy the city and the animals and the people in it. And so the Israelites basically get to walk in and win. Well, the story ends in verse 27 by saying this, so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Here's what we see in this story. We see that that our God is a powerful and amazing God. He works wonders to bring about his people into the promised land, even to the point of destroying the city and fighting for the Israelites, so they didn't have to die upon the battlements. God was with them. Our God, He is a providing God, and He wants to provide for His people. And so the promised land is His provision. He wants to give them these cities to live in, these fields that they they didn't plant, and these uh, vineyards that they didn't plant and plow. Yeah, whatever. He, He does that. He wants to provide those things. Even in our lives, He wants to provide for us when we need provision. We also see God's timing. It's an amazing timing, even beyond what we can even fathom. Right, and when we are provided, oftentimes we are provided in the way that we need at the moment we need it. Our God is amazing. And our response to this amazing God we see is that we should be devoted towards Him. All aspects of who we are. Whether we're at work, whether we're at home, whether we're at school, all of who we are needs to be devoted towards Him. Not just Sunday mornings, but Monday through Saturday as well. And when we have decisions to make, it should be in regards to what God is desiring us to do. And we see that that God provides mercy to Rahab and grace to allow her to live. 
And in the same way, we are worthy of destruction, the sinners that we are. And except for the grace of Christ, we are worthy of destruction. And if we devote ourselves to Him, we become these people of God who who get to spend eternity with Jesus. And so in recognition of who God is and, and His power and His might, we need to have devotion towards Him. Let us be devoted people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that You provided the sacrifice that brings forgiveness. Lord, when we look at the story of, of Jericho and we see Rahab and her being spared uh, and we see the destruction that, that accompanied the battle, Lord, we're amazed not just at your justice, but also at your grace. Lord, help us to be reminded of both aspects of who you are, of your justness, of your needing to punish sin, and also of your grace and mercy that you've given us. Help us, Father, to be people who are completely devoted towards you, who are sharing this good news of grace that we find in Jesus. Thank you, God, for the awesome God that you are.